0: Thank you for downloading our audio tour. If you really want the complete experience of this tour, you should check out pictures, videos and the other extras you can find in our free app. Download our free easy.travel app for iOS, Android, Windows Phone and Google Glass now. Or visit easy.travel for more information. You are on the plaza or the square of Paris' city hall. It's located on the right bank of the city, north of the Seine. In the 11th and 12th centuries, it is on this side of the Seine that economic growth took place through trade thanks to the river. This plaza was called the Place de Grève, or the Strike Plaza at the time, because it was said that unemployed workers who were awaiting employment stood here. This expression took its current meaning only in the 19th century when disgruntled workers gathered here on the same spot. Note also that this place was under the old regime, the place where death sentences were executed, hangings, beheadings, quartering, people burned alive or severely beaten depending on their social class or the type of offence. However, let's get back to the development of the city. During the 12th century, The importance of the river for transporting supplies to the city was such that the Guild of Water Merchants' Water were granted the monopoly on the river traffic by the king. The first municipality appears, soon to be represented by the Provost of the Merchants, who in the 14th century settles into the House of Pillars, the ancestor of this town hall, the Hôtel de Ville. The Provost of Paris represented the king here. Both authorities were often rivals. François Hier rebuilt the Hôtel de Ville in the 16th century when it became a beautiful Renaissance-style town hall. Unfortunately, a political party called the Paris Communards will burn down the building in the late 19th century. These insurgents revolted against the republican authorities after the surrender of Napoleon III in his war against Prussia. So it is that the city hall was rebuilt, the central Renaissance part was rebuilt identically, but raised up higher and enlarged. You can see all the way on top, several areas topped with couplers in a neo-Renaissance style, and all around the building there are 136 statues representing historical figures in the history of Paris. Until the 1970s, two prefects who reported directly to the state managed the city of Paris. Then, with the election of Jacques Chirac as the first mayor of the city, Paris acquired its full autonomy. It's now managed like a state within a state. Today it employs about 40,000 people. Now, when you turn your back to the City Hall, go left towards the Seine. You will see a bridge and to get there cross the street using the pedestrian crossing. Place yourself in the middle of the bridge called the Pont d'Arcole on the left. You were on the Pont d'Arcol, the Arcol Bridge. From here admire the beautiful view overlooking the Ile de la Cité and the Seine's surroundings. Behind the Ile de la Cité, on the left, you can see another island with a metal bridge connecting them. That is the Ile Saint-Louis. The Ile Saint-Louis, smaller than the Ile de la Cité, was once a simple pasture field where cows were grazing, but in reality there were two islands the Ile aux Vaches, Cow's Island, and the Ile Notre-Dame, Our Lady's Island. It was in the 17th century that the two islands were united and Louis Le Vau, architect of Louis IV, turned the Ile Saint-Louis into a stylish residential area. As for the Ile de la Cité, it is considered the original cradle of Paris. In the 3rd century BC, the Gaelic fishermen of the Parisi tribe settled there that marked the birth of Lutetia. Conquered by the Romans, the city was known for its inland water-shipping activities. In the 5th century, under the Merovingian dynasty, the island took on the name of Cité, and much of the city's activities were concentrated on the Île de la Cité. Until the 10th century, the fortified island faced multiple and disastrous Norman invasions, the memory of which will be perpetuated until the 16th century in Parisian churches with the prayer, God free us from the fury of the Normans. In the Middle Ages, the Ile de la Cité grew considerably. The growing population moved increasingly onto the banks of the Seine. From a political, spiritual and cultural point of view, the island became a centre of attraction for Europe. The royal and the judiciary powers, inseparable at the time, coexisted in the same palace which was enlarged and embellished by Philippe le Bel, Philip the Fair one. Saint Louis ordered the construction of the Saint-Chapelle. Notre-Dame was gradually coming to life. Schools of poetry and philosophy opened their doors. The Île-de-la-Cité, despite its long history, looks today as it did during the 19th century. The maze of narrow streets which enclosed Notre-Dame and the Palace of Justice were destroyed by the work of housemen and replaced by wide roads opening the island to the circulation of traffic. However, one can still feel the old poetic ambiance by meandering through the flower and bird markets that you will see just after the bridge on your right. In fact, go ahead and walk towards that bridge and cross it, continue on straight and you will arrive at the Place du Parvis de Notre-Dame. Stand in front of the façade of the Notre-Dame Cathedral. You are now facing Notre-Dame Cathedral. Notre-Dame is famous both for the extraordinary architectural quality of the cathedral as well as for the many adaptations of the Victor Hugo's novel Notre-Dame de Paris. Did you know that it took two centuries to build this great work of Gothic architecture? Construction began in the 12th century. During the French Revolution, the structure was heavily damaged, and in the 19th century, the famous architect, Viollet-le-Duc, undertook its restoration. For the record, the architect left a trace of himself by appearing in a sculpture at the top of the building near the spire under the guise of St. Thomas, patron of the architect's. Throughout its history, the cathedral was the seat of great religious and political events in the Middle Ages. It hosted the crown of Thorns of Christ brought by Saint-Louis, then came the rehabilitation trial of Joan of Arc, the marriage of Henry IV and Queen Margot, the coronation of Napoleon I, and more recently, the mass of the liberation of Paris or the funeral of General de Gaulle. Enjoy the façade for a moment from top to bottom. You see two towers— On the right-hand one, the massive great bell weighs 13 tons. Then look at the rose. It represents the infinite circle of the divine world and forms a halo to the statue of the Virgin with her child, flanked by two angels. Now, can you see a row of 28 statues? It's the gallery of kings. Those are the rulers of Judah and Israel who reigned before Christ, in short, his ancestors. These statues are only replicas, however, because at the time of the Revolution, Parisians thought the statues depicted the kings of France, and revolutionary thinking led them to seek destruction of all royal symbols, so they decided to behead the statues and remove them one by one. A number of the original heads were found in the basement of a bank, and they have since exhibited at the Museum of Cluny. Finally, below, look at the three portals. In the Middle Ages, the statues and carvings that make them up had as their mission to compose a stone Bible for the people who could not read. The central portal depicts the Last Judgment. The right one is dedicated to St. Anne, and as to the left portal, it is dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Have you noticed a crowd of people on the square near the cathedral? Well, there you can see the Point Zero of the Roads of France forming a copper rose on the stone floor of the plaza. From this particular point, the distances of roads are calculated linking Paris to other cities in France. Now let's head to the Latin Quarter. To do this, turn your back to the cathedral and go to your left towards the bridge. Enjoy again the sight of the little bridge going over a small branch of the Seine. Once you have crossed, cross the Quai Montabello and go to the little square just on the right. You are at the square Viviani, which has a bronze fountain in its centre. The sculptor was inspired by the story of Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre, the holy patron of the church you see right next to it. Here is the legend of Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre, or Julian the Poor One. Two mysterious predictions accompany the birth of Julien. He shall be holy, and he shall be emperor. During his youth, Julien is a cruel lord, During a hunt, a deer predicted to him that he would kill his parents, and soon after, the deer's prediction almost comes true. Involuntarily, Julien shoots at his mother. To escape the traumatizing prediction, he leaves the family castle. He fights in several armies and eventually obtains the daughter of an emperor in marriage, thanks to his courageous exploits. One night, while Julien was hunting, His parents, who have long been looking for him, come to his wife who offers them his bed for them to rest. Upon his return, Julien glimpses in the dark at a man lying in his bed with what he believes to be his wife and cuts his parents' throat. When he discovers the horrible truth, he gives up all his property and devotes himself to the service of others by becoming a people smuggler. One night he helps a leper, nourishes and warms his with his own body, so the dying man, who is none other than our Lord Jesus, takes him to heaven. Now go back and look towards the church. You will see a tree that looks as if it is falling. This is the oldest tree in Paris, a locust planted in the very early 17th century by the botanist Robin, who bought it from America. At present, starting from the Square Viviani on the left, staying on the Seine side, take the Rue de la Boucherie. Stand in front of number 37, put your device on pause and resume when you are there and ready. All right, you are in front of the famous English-language bookstore, Shakespeare & Co., which was founded in the 1950s by the American George Whitman. Authors belonging to the lost generation, such as Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, or Henry Miller, often visited the bookstore. We can even come here and nestle in to read in a small alcove hidden by a red curtain. Have you noticed a fountain in front of the bookstore? Another symbol of Paris. It is a Wallace fountain. You will see many in the capital, about a hundred. After the civil war of the late 19th century and during the Paris Commune phase, which plunged the city into chaos, Sir Richard Wallace, a British philanthropist and Parisian by adoption, decided to donate the public fountains to the city of Paris so that its inhabitants did not die of thirst. Now continue to the end of the street of the Rue de la Boucherie. You will arrive on the Rue de Petit-Pont. Turn slightly left. Cross the street using the pedestrian crossing on your left, and then take the small street that's almost exactly opposite, Rue de la Houcher. Go ahead, we'll wait for you there. So, now you are on the Rue de la Huchette in the Latin Quarter. The name dates back to the Middle Ages when it was the landmark for students and their teachers. The university started as a school attached to the cathedral, Classes were held outdoors under the arches of the cathedral's cloister. In the 12th century many people migrated to the left bank and soon after the faculties were founded not least of which, for example, the Sorbonne, which was established in the 13th century. Today other schools and higher education institutions are still located here. So why is it called the Latin Quarter? This comes from the fact that Latin was spoken not just in universities and colleges whose courses were taught in Latin, but also in the street. At the time, students flocked around the world. Perhaps they could not speak their own language with everyone, but they could all speak Latin. So here they communicated in Latin, in the neighbourhood where they lived and studied. Nowadays there are still many students who come here, but also people from around the world who come to visit and walk the narrow streets, Settling on café terraces or going to jazz clubs. In fact, look at number five. Here is Le Caveau de la Huchette, created just after the Second World War in an authentic medieval stone cellar. The Caveau de la Huchette has seen some of the greatest names in jazz, such as Lionel Hampton. This is where Sidney Bechet organized the invitation of big bands that traveled from New Orleans to Paris in the nineteen fifties. This is also where some grandiose movies were shot, such as Vera Belmont's La Rouge Bézère, The Red Kiss. While going forward, you will see a small alley on your right, called Rue du Chat qui Pêche, the street of the fishing cat. It is the smallest street in Paris. Continue up, Rue Rouget. It still retains its medieval look of yesteryear. Indeed, the Latin Quarter still preserves some medieval streets. They are now dedicated to Greek restaurants, fast food, and ready-to-wear boutiques. At number 23, you will see the Théâtre de la Huchette. Put your device on pause and then resume once you are in front of the theatre. It hosts La Cantatrice Chauve, The Bald Soprano, and La Lacan, The Lesson by Eugene Ionesco in their original staging. The works have been playing without interruption since the 1950s, These two pieces beat the world record for longevity in one theatre in 1979. Now go to the end of the Rue de la Huchette. At the intersection, turn right and walk to the Saint-Michel metro station, across from the brasserie Les Departs-Saint-Michel. You are in front of the gates of Paris' Court of Appeals. Do you see a chapel that lies inside the courthouse on the left, This is the Saint-Chapelle. This absolute masterpiece of Gothic art is above all a gigantic shrine to house the relics of the Passion of Christ, including the crown of thorns and a fragment of the cross purchased by King Saint-Louis from Boudoir II, Emperor of Constantinople, for a value three times higher than the amount invested in the construction of the chapel. To accommodate such valuable content, it was necessary to have a very specific place. Saint Louis made the choice to include the church he wanted to build into the Palais de Justice in order not to separate the relics from royalty. The construction of the Saint-Chapelle was not only an act of piety, it was also a political act. It was built in the 13th century in a very short time. A building doted with an aerial grace Believers in the Middle Ages compared it to a gate of heaven. Today we can admire its stained glass windows that depict scenes from the Old and New Testaments. The preservation and renovation of the interior's polychromic patterns remind us that at the time the majority of churches and cathedrals had multicolored walls. Now, to the right is the conciergerie, the main remnant of the old cité's palace, which was the residence and seat of power of the kings of France from the 10th to the 14th centuries. We'll have a better view of it just after. After the abandonment of this palace to the benefit of the Louvre, it was converted into a state prison. The premises were put under the authority of a highly placed person, the concierge, governor of the king's house. The prison occupied the ground floor of the building, the upper floor being reserved for the parliament, Here were held prisoners who had made attempts against the life of the king. During the reign of terror during the French Revolution, it was considered the antechamber of death. Very few people came out of this place alive. Today, we can visit reconstructions of the detention cells of that time. We will now see some details of its architecture. To do this, continue on the Boulevard du Palais, along the Conciergerie, staying on the same sidewalk and go to the end, to the next intersection. You will see at the left end a tower with a clock. Look left at an angle towards the corner, the famous clock tower, the Tour de Lore. In the middle of the 14th century, the clock tower was built to strengthen the palace's defence system. It hosted Paris's first public clock. Did you know that until the late 19th century, the time of day was different in France than elsewhere? For example, between Paris and Strasbourg, there was a one-hour difference. It was based on solar time to set the time of a city. The arrival of trains overturned the system. A single hour was needed to harmonize schedules, so it was decided that all the cities of France would adjust their time to Parisian time. At present, cross the Quai de l'Horloge, then take the Pont Change. stand at the center of the bridge, Put your device on pause and resume a bit later. Admire the architecture of the Conciergerie. After the clock tower, as you just saw, you can see two twin towers. On the left, the Tower of Caesar, who once commanded the entrance to the royal palace. The Tower of Caesar, named in memory of the presence of the Romans, is named as such because the tower is built on Roman foundations. On the right, the Silver Tower, where the royal treasury was kept. The tower and its twin were built around 1300. During the Reign of Terror, Mr. Fouquier-Tonval, responsible for about 2600 deaths by guillotine, had his offices on the first floor of these two towers. Finally, at the far right end, the Bombeck Tower was the first tower built. The torture practiced here for centuries eventually released the prisoners' tongues, giving the tower its name Bonbec, meaning cheekily, good mouth. During the revolution, prisoners went from there to the Paris guillotines, erected in different places across time, the most recent being at the Place de la Concorde, with victims such as Marie-Antoinette, Charlotte Corday, Danton and Robespierre. The last execution in France by guillotine did not take place in Paris but in Marseille in 1977, at the Baumet's prison. Now let's walk along the pont Enchange change to the end. Stand at the corner of the Quai de la Méguesserie. In front of you is the Place du Châtelet. This square marks the geographical centre of the capital. It is named after the ancient fortress, the Grand Châtelet, which stood in this place to protect the northern entrance to the Île de la Cité. After serving as prison for a long time, it was demolished under the empire. At the centre is the Châtelet Fountain, also known as the Victory or the Palm Fountain. It commemorates the victories of Napoleon I. Look at each side of the fountain. There are two large buildings. Baron Hausmann decided to build two theatres face-to-face on this plaza that's currently being refurbished. On the left is the Théâtre du Châtelet, this is the largest hall in Paris, with its approximately 2,500 seats. It was inaugurated in the presence of the Empress Eugénie, wife of Napoleon III, with a performance of Rothermago's Fierie en vingt tableaux. The Napoleonic N-medallions found on the facades manifest the imperial character of the place. The technical equipment of the theatre are particularly innovative and make Châtelet the privileged scene of great shows with special effects or even pyrotechnics. All genres will therefore illustrate it, from the famous actor Frédéric Lemaitre, star of the Boulevard du Crimée's performances, to the adapted theatre pieces of Alexandre Dumas and Émile Zola's novels. Starting in the 1920s, this theatre will become the temple of the large-scale operettas, under the direction of Maurice Lehmann. After that, the management will be taken over by the city of Paris. Now, across the plaza on your right, there's the Théâtre de la Ville, or the Sarah Bernhardt Theatre. There are similarities with the new Lyric Imperial Theatre in front of it, but this performance hall is much smaller, and contains only 1,500 seats. As an anecdote, the prompter's box is located at the precise location of where there was a gaslight from which the poet Gérard de Neval had hung himself a few years earlier. In this time of the late 19th century, the great star of the time was undeniably Sarah Bernhardt, who took into her hands the destiny of the Renaissance theatre before becoming the director of the Lyric Theatre. She will even personally acquire it. It will bear her name for 70 years before changing its name to the Théâtre de la Cité. Indeed, under the German occupation, it will be renamed because of the Jewish origins of the famous actress. Now turn left and continue on the Quai de la Maguisserie on the Seine side. Walk to the end of the Quai to the next bridge. On the way, listen to our commentary regarding the Quai de la Maguisserie. While walking, look to the left and admire the beautiful view of the Conciergerie and the Palace de Justice. The foliage of the centuries-old plain trees protect the buildings on either side of the quay. Formerly, the Quay de la Mégisserie was called Misery Valley because butchers slaughtered their animals there for meat. Then it took on the name of Megisserie, from Megui, the art of preparing sheepskins. The unbearable stench of the tanning activity resulted in them being driven away much further down the far-left bank. For a long time in the Valley of Misery, professionals could sell their birds on Sundays and certain working holidays. This was most likely a great show at the time. Parisians came to select their fowl exposed in outdoor cages. Bird merchants came from all walks of life. There were Germans, Swiss, Tyroleans who came to sell their goldfinches, canaries or parrots. Those birds which were very appreciated at the time ensured a good living to their merchants and the outstanding sounds of one bird or the beautiful colours of another made prices quickly climb. Some Grandes Dames of the 18th century became improvised canary trainers and sold them right here. Fowlers had even organized themselves into a corporation or trade association under the protection of St. John the Evangelist. This tradition lasted for six centuries and ended in the 1990s. Despite this, for a long time traders continued to expose their animals in cages outside in front of their shop windows, German and American tourists were outraged to see these birds exposed to the exhaust pipes of the passing cars, and they did not hesitate to complain to the authorities. To please them, Parisian town councillors decided to ban the placement of the animals on the Quai de la It is now forbidden to present chickens, pigeons, roosters and turkeys on the street under penalty of a fine. Hens and their fellows are now living much healthier lives at the back of the stores or in their cellars under the neon lights. Merchants had to resign themselves, not without protesting, to stow away their cages. The passage on street is now much easier, though less picturesque. Today, in addition to cellars of all kinds of animals, from goldfish to dogs, from rabbits to insects and from reptiles to birds, there are also grain shops and florists. That's it, you've arrived at the Pont Neuve. Stand on the bridge slightly back from the street. Admire the view again. Despite its name, the Pont Neuve is the oldest bridge in Paris. It was built in the late 16th century to allow the king to move more easily from one bank to another and to facilitate relations between the Louvre and the Abbey of Saint-Germain-de-Prés. This was a true innovation for the time, It was the first stone bridge built without houses, because previously bridges were made of wood and covered with houses. Have you noticed a large equestrian statue at the back on the left? It's the statue of King Henry IV. It overlooks the Square du Vert-Gallant, a nickname given to the king for his many female conquests. Do you know that this equestrian statue holds many secrets? In the 2000s, during some restoration work to the monument, the belly of the horse and rider were searched. Inside, they found seven sealed lead boxes. The presence of four of them were known to specialists and thus predictable. They contained precious texts on the history of the statue and the King Henry IV himself, but the other three, smaller and cylindrical in shape, created a great surprise. They contained wrapped scrolls, in fact anti-royalist pamphlets. It's thought that this might be a political signature by the engraver Meznel, a fervent Bonapartist who wanted to leave behind a secret report of his political views. One of the cylindrical cans discovered indeed bears his name. Now look to the left. You see the former La Samaritain department store originally there was a pump at this place destined to supply water to parisians and to the royal court then on the pont neuf a street vendor settled there selling his goods under his large red umbrella that was ernest cognac who made a fortune and later established the shops of la samaritain for a long time la samaritain was the largest parisian department store followed by the galeries lafayette and the pont it closed its doors in the 2000s for security reasons related to the building's structure. We still are wondering what the Samaritan will look like in a few years. Luxury hotel, shopping mall or low-income housing? The Seine River cuts through Paris approximately in the middle, demarcating the left and right banks. It crosses Paris over nearly 13 kilometers and is a shallow river. Connecting the Île-de-France and the Champagne region to the North Sea, the Seine is the busiest waterway in France, with more than 20 million tons of goods and merchandise that transits over it each year. An interesting story. Did you know that in reality this is not the Seine? If one were to consider each of the powers of flow to their confluence, this is not the Seine flowing in Paris, but the Yonne. Indeed, when the two rivers meet, we consider that it is the smaller flow which flows into the other. In Seine-et-Marne, the Seine has a flow rate of 80 cubic metres per second, while the Yon has a flow rate of 93 cubic metres per second. So the Seine flows into the Yon. Thus Paris is actually crossed by the Yon, which flows into the Manche, the English Channel. But why this error? you actually have to go back to the Gaulois period and take into account the real wars for influence between tribes. To impose the Seine was a way to entrench the power of those in control of this river, unless, since all these centuries, the flows have changed. Now about the famous boats on the Seine, the bateau Mouche, but really, why this name which translates to the flyboats? Their name comes from the fact that they were originally built on the sites of La Mouche, the Fly, in Lyon. For fifty years they provided the loyal boat services. However, due to the competition from the bus and metro, they had to cease their activities in the thirties. A decade or so afterwards, they became tour boats named as we know them today. Did you know that Paris has the biggest bookstore in the world? Over a three-kilometre length along the banks of the Seine, over 200 booksellers in their green boxes are waiting for you to discover their treasures, ancient and contemporary works. The bookseller's history dates back to the 16th century when small peddlers began to take possession of the Seine to sell their books, often used. Soon, booksellers considered them unfair competition, Driven away and later reinstated, the fate of booksellers evolved again with the French Revolution, and it was at this time that the term bouquiniste, a more casual term for bookseller, enters the dictionary of the French Academy. The term comes from the word bouquin, derived from the Flemish boquin, meaning little book. Since the mid-19th century, the profession is regulated. Today, in addition to books, you will find prints, stamps, and other types of publications. That's it. You've arrived at the Pont des Arts. Go to the centre of the bridge and stand there. Admire the wonderful perspective from the Pont Neuve, the new bridge, and the Ile de la Cité. Napoleon I decided to build a bridge linking the Louvre to the College of the Four Nations, which today is called L'Institut. Its name comes from the Palace of Arts, the name of the Louvre under the Second Empire. This construction marks the introduction in France of a new building material, iron. So this is the first iron bridge in France. But it's not the original one, because after many river accidents, it was decided to rebuild it in the 1980s with the same look, but this time in steel and with seven arches instead of nine, in order to ease navigation by providing a bit more space. The fad-for-love padlocks, hung by couples here, serve to unite them forever. Tradition has it that after having closed the padlock, they throw the key into the water. These locks will gradually disappear to make room for wood panels because some grids have given way under the weight of padlocks, creating holes that jeopardize the safety of passers-by. Now look at the other end of the Institut de France, the building with its beautiful dome. This building was born from the will and fortune of a single man, Cardinal Jules Mazarin, who pursued, along with the young Louis XIV, the establishment of royal absolutism. At the end of his life, anxious to perpetuate the glory of his name, Mazarin decided to build a building as prestigious as those left by his predecessor and his model, Richelieu, who had built the chapel of the Sorbonne and the royal palace. So it was that he bequeathed by will to the young King Louis XIV a significant sum for the building of a school destined to receive sixty young nobles from four provinces conquered under the Ministry of Mazarin. The school would use the name of Collège de Quatre Nations, College of the Four Nations. Mazarin's tomb was to rest in the chapel of the building. It was Napoleon who had the Institute of France move into this building resulting from the merger of the five academies, the Académie Française, the Academy of Inscriptions and Beautiful Letters, Science, Fine Arts and Moral Sciences. The overall institution took on the name that it retained to this day, the Palais de l'Institut. It is now the seat of the prestigious Académie Française. The academics are nicknamed the Immortals because of their moral authority and their famous mission, which is to define the French language. Now retrace your steps by returning to the quay. Cross the quay François Mitterrand using the pedestrian crossing across the road and enter the Louvre by the Cour Carré, square yard, under the portico. You will see at the top a beautiful wrought-iron balcony with medallions that represent the Sun Louis XIV's emblem. Go ahead and place yourself in the centre of the plaza where there is a water basin. You have entered the magnificent palace of the Louvre, and you are specifically in the Cour Carré, or the Square Yard. The history of the Louvre dates back to the late 12th century, when King Philip Augustus built a fortress to protect Paris from Viking raids. The word Louvre would be of Saxon origin, and would mean fortified enclosure. In fact, it is under your feet that the fortress was located, for which we can see the old foundations today. Starting in the 14th century, the kings of France left the palace of the Île de la Cité to come and settle in the Louvre and make their royal residence. Over the centuries, the Louvre will continually be transformed, modified according to the tastes of its kings and queens. When Louis XIV decides to leave the Louvre and move to Versailles, the palace will host many artists. Their works are intended to glorify the king. But the French Revolution will end this monarchical sovereignty, and in 1793 the National Assembly will decide to return all the treasures to the people by creating a museum. The Grand Louvre project, launched in the 1980s, fully renovates the premises. The final transformation of the Louvre Palace into a museum takes place with the inauguration of the new Richelieu Wing. 200 years after the opening of the Louvre to the public, the Louvre Museum is one of the largest and richest museums on the planet. The collections of the works of art are grouped into 7 departments. They include Eastern and Islamic works, Egyptian antiquities, Greek, Etruscan and Roman objects of art, sculptures, paintings and graphic arts. The Louvre is the home of the most famous painting in the world, La Joconde or the Mona Lisa. Did you know that the Mona Lisa was stolen in the early 20th century by an Italian, Vincenzo Perugia, an employee of the Louvre who had been hired to participate in the setting under glass of many of the museum's works? He kept the painting in his room in Paris for two years. It's even said that he used it as a table for dining. While trying to sell it in Italy, the thief was caught and the Mona Lisa returned to the Louvre. Now continue towards the Pyramid. Go under the porch of the Pavilion de l'horloge or Clock Pavilion, turn your device back on when you're ready and facing the main entrance of the pyramid. Designed by Chinese-American architect I.M. Pai, the 1980s-built pyramid marks the entrance of the museum. It was President François Mitterrand's wish to build this shortly after his election. 21 meters high on a 30-meter square base, This pyramid for which the optical glass made by Saint-Gobain limits the effects of reflection is set into an aluminium frame supported by a stainless steel structure. After much controversy around such a futuristic look right in the middle of a historic monument it is now perfectly well accepted its transparency integrating well in this important historical spot of Paris. Now look away from the pyramid to the north Up some distance, can you see an Arc de Triomphe? Go ahead and pause your device and walk to it. Turn the device back on once you have arrived. You are facing the Arc de Triomphe du Carrousel. This famous monument celebrates Napoleon's victories, including his victory at Austerlitz in the early 19th century. This is one of the most representative works of the imperial style. This arc makes reference to the triumphal arches of the Roman Empire. Carousels were actually military celebrations, luxurious performances given by riders during which they paraded in quadrilles. The carousel that was performed under Louis XIV in the 17th century was so great that this plaza and the Louvre bridge took on the name. The arch of the carousel marks the entrance of the Tuileries. And imagine another palace here that actually really existed, the Palace of the Tuileries. It closed off the Louvre Palace on its west side, but it was burned down during the civil war of the Commune period and it was decided to demolish it completely. From that point on, and today, we can enjoy a beautiful view towards the Place de la Concorde, the Elysées, and at the very end the Arc de Triomphe. In fact, why don't you go on in that very direction while staying in the centre of the way in order to see this perspective? Walk forwards towards the Jardin de Tuileries go to the first round basin, which is called the Grand Rond. You are now at the Grand Rond, or the Tuileries Gardens, a true centre of greenery and fresh air in the heart of the capital. This garden welcomes some 14 million visitors per year. The garden is also at the crossroads of a few of the most touristic attractions of the City of Light. The four cardinal points are the Louvre, the Musée d'Orsay, the Champs-Elysées, the Palace Vendôme, and the Palais Garnier Opera House. Besides, of course, the museums of Jeux de Palme and the Orangerie, which are set in the very grounds of the garden. Let's take a few moments to tell its story. In the 16th century, François I had chosen this vast land occupied since the Middle Ages by tile factories and surrounded by pumpkin fields to build a luxury residence with gardens which never saw the light. Later, Catherine de' Medici, seduced by the scene, had a palace built, the Tuileries, in the middle, an Italian garden with fountains, a cave, a greenhouse and even a menagerie. Lavish receptions took place there, giving the opportunity to the powerful of the time to glorify their power. In the 17th century, André Le Nôtre, the creator of the Royal Gardens of Versailles was commissioned by Louis the Fourteenth to redesign the garden. The king opened it up to be a walking area for honest people. This was the first public park in Paris. Official and popular celebration events took place over the centuries. The Parisians present, gawking at the rise of the first hydrogen balloon, the first motor show, the banquet of the 22,000 mayors of France, attractions in celebration of Bicentennial, of the Revolution, etc. Now it's an open-air sculpture museum, hosting works by Rodin and Maillol. The Tuileries garden has undergone a complete transformation in the 1990s. Landscape artists retained what they considered to be the essential elements of Le Notre's design. The lawns were retraced, the trees were preserved and replanted, and every spring you can admire the thousands of plants placed by gardeners of the domain, the irrigation water being conveyed from the Urk Canal through a high-pressure pump and computerised management. Can you see on your left, on the Seine side, a large stone building on the left bank that looks like a train station? That's the Musée d'Orsay. This museum is dedicated to the art of the period between 1848 to 1914, we can see famous works such as Monet's Poppies, the Moulin de la Galerie, by Renoir, or also many works by the painter Van Gogh. Keep walking on the centre alley, heading to the centre of the gardens. You will walk through paths adorned by linden trees punctuated here and there by beautiful elms. When you find yourself at the centre of the garden, turn right on Allée de Castiglioni, and take the exit onto Riverley Street. You are now out of the Tuileries Gardens, and you are on the Rue de Rivoli. Cross the street via the pedestrian crossing on your right and go forward under the arches onto the Rue de Castiglioni. The Rue de Rivoli runs through the heart of Paris and stretches out over nearly three kilometres. This is a major axis through the centre of Paris from east to west. Its name evokes the victory of Napoleon at Rivoli against the Austrians. The oldest part towards the Place de la Concorde is the most luxurious and has elegant arches topped with neoclassical apartments that today house bookstores and fashion boutiques. Walk along the Rue Castiglione under the arcades and go to the Place Vendôme. You can probably already see a bronze column far in front of you from where you are walking. Pause and resume your device when you arrive. Admire the Place Vendôme. Which is one of the most beautiful architectural ensembles of Paris from the end of the reign of Louis the fourteenth. We owe this square to the architect of the famous gallery of mirrors of Versailles, Jules Hardouin Mansart. Have you noticed the emblem of Louis the fourteenth, the sun? It's on every balcony. The square was also created to provide a framework for an equestrian statue of Louis XIV which was destroyed during the Revolution and gave way to the Vendôme Column you can now see. The Vendôme Column was erected by Napoleon to the glory of the soldiers who conquered Austerlitz. It forms a bronze spiral melted from the 1,250 cannons captured during the battle. Military scenes are represented on the carved surface. At the top, you can see Napoleon I dressed as Julius Caesar. Previously, depending on the political regime changes and various unrests, there was the statue of Henry IV and also one of Napoleon as a petite caporal, little corporal an affectionate nickname. During the insurrection of the Commune, the column will be knocked over, causing exile to the painter Gustave Courbet, who ended up being blamed for this act. Since then, during the Third Republic, a replica of the original statue was erected and stands to this day. In this square at number 15, you see the Ritz Hotel, one of the most famous hotels in Paris, founded by César Ritz. The Egyptian businessman, Mohamed Al-Fayed, owns it today. In August 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, and her lover, the son of Mohamed Al-Fayed, Dodi, dined in the Imperial Hotel Suite, before their fatal car accident. At number twelve is the house in which the composer Chopin died. He was the famous lover of the writer Georges Sand, born Aurore Dupin. At present retrace your steps on the Rue Castiglione, walking on the right side. Stop for a moment at the next intersection with the Rue Saint Honore, and listen to our next comment. The Rue Saint Honore is a very old road dating from the medieval times. It's on this street that Marie-Antoinette purchased beauty products, and it is said that her lover Fernsen procured the invisible ink used to correspond with the Queen. Today, Rue Saint-Honoré is known worldwide for its luxury boutiques. This is the second mecca of fashion after Paris's Avenue Montaigne. All major brands are here. This is an opportunity to talk about fashion. In France, starting as early as the 14th century, fashion was an aristocratic whim that caused a sensation at the court. It's what allowed the wealthy classes to distinguish themselves from the lower classes. At the court, we talked about costumes. They were not necessarily beautiful, but had to be bling. The materials were rare, and the fabrics were always rich and sumptuous. It was also during this period that we began to use scent, It must be said that at the time perfume largely replaced soap and makeup, and it wasn't just reserved to women. Men loved to cover their face with a veil of powder which gave them a whitish complexion that was very trendy at the time. A tanned complexion was the obsessive fear of the upper classes as it would align them with the common people who worked in the fields. The history of fashion, however, really begins in the 19th century. The British designer and pioneer of haute couture, Charles Frederick Worth was the first to have real models don his creations and showcase them in prestigious salons where a wealthy female clientele congregated. But it's a lady that will truly revolutionize fashion and also women themselves, Coco Chanel. She invented a relaxing fashion that freed the woman's body from corsets and other restrictive apparel. She used flexible forms and pleasant and comfortable materials for the body. She revolutionized women's fashion by creating the first pair of pants for women, the first women's suit, and popularizing jersey material, until then serving only for male clothing. The twentieth century saw the emergence of some of its greatest creators. Cacharel and Yves Saint Laurent, to name a few, exceptional designers who worked only for a sparse, affluent clientele. The invention of electricity created industrialization, which in turn created the novelty of confection, garment manufacturing, the ancestor of the ready-to-wear, which created a reason for the existence of department stores. For the first time in its history, clothing exits the dim working room where mothers sewed, sometimes awkwardly for their families. Clothing invades the shop windows of the big cities first and soon the province as well. The early mass fashion phenomenon is starting its movement and it's the face of our whole society that will change. Now, continue on the Rue Castiglione by heading towards Rivoli Street. Go to the corner, staying on your right. You have arrived at the Place de la Concorde near the obelisk. Enjoy the splendour of this place and the beautiful perspective onto the Champs-Elysées. This plaza was built in the 18th century for King Louis XV and included an equestrian statue that stood in the centre of the square. During the French Revolution, the statue of Louis XV was brought down and the square lost its original name. On the new Revolution Square, the guillotine was set up. This is where Louis the Sixteenth and many other victims such as Marie Antoinette Danton and Robespierre perished during the reign of terror a total of one thousand three hundred and forty three heads fell on this square this eight hectare site took on its initial name Concorde when public execution ceased symbolizing the desired place under Louis Philippe Hittor finishes the decoration of the square in accordance with the plans drawn by architect Jacques-Ange Gabriel, thus giving way to the sight as it looks today. At the corners of the square are eight statues, symbols of the main cities of France, Marseille, Lyon, Strasbourg-Lille, Rouen, Brest, and Bordeaux-Nantes. On the Tuileries garden side are the Orangerie Museum and the National Gallery of the Jeux de Pomme. On the north side, to the left, is the Hôtel de Crillon and to the right, the Department of the Navy. Between the two buildings down the street, you have the Church of Madelin, built in the classical architecture of a Greco-Roman temple. Across from the Madelin church on your left is the Bourbon Palace with its classical columns. They echo each other in their look, an effect that was intentional. Now look at the obelisk from Luxor. It's the oldest monument in Paris, It was offered in the 19th century by Mohammed Ali, vice-king of Egypt to King Charles X. It comes from the ruins of the Temple of Luxor. It took over two years to deliver it. The monument, made of pink granite, 33 centuries old, is covered with hieroglyphs, celebrating the exploits of Pharaoh Ramses II. The pedestal reproduces the equipment designed and used for the transfer and the erection of this monolith that weighs over 230 tons. Now finally, take a look at the Champs-Elysées. The history of this magnificent avenue goes back to the aisles created for Marie de Medici in the axis of the Tuileries garden that Le Notre refurbished in the 17th century. But it is only during the Second Empire that the Champs-Elysées took their modern form, They now form the most beautiful avenue in the world. Our tour ends here. You can continue your stroll on the Champs-Elysées, an opportunity for you to go shopping or to sit in a cafe. We hope you had a good time with us. We wish you a good end of your stay in Paris. We hope to see you again soon.